Please turn with me in scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who is dead and who came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who is killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And to the, church, the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. 
I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, and as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This morning we come to the second of the seven churches in Asia, the church in Smyrna. Indeed, the title of this morning's sermon is To the Suffering Church. I am the first and the last who is dead and who came to life. Now, in complete contrast to all we have about Ephesus in Scripture, I did not even go over all the instances in which Ephesus was mentioned in Scripture last week. In contrast to that, we know little about Smyrna, at least in Scripture. In fact, these mentions here in Revelation chapters 1 and 2 are the only ones we have in Scripture. But we do have other sources, extra-biblical sources, which tell us that Smyrna was the second most important city in the region next to Ephesus itself. And one interesting fact we have would be the fact that Polycarp, who did not live all that long after John himself, was martyred there in Smyrna. And we are told that such was a deep hatred of the people of the Jewish synagogue towards the Christians that they came out on the Sabbath day to gather firewood in order to hasten his demise, to facilitate his martyrdom. And that would seem to have great continuity with the situation we have as we have it in Revelation chapter 2, that there was persecution, and the source of that persecution would seem to be the Jewish synagogue. Now, that persecution is either the cause of or else on top of their great poverty. We don't know which one of these two things it might have been. It was likely, though, that their persecution certainly exacerbated the poverty they already had. We speak about that in a little bit. Now, the question is, so this is their situation. It's a suffering church. They're suffering both in terms of persecution and in terms of their poverty. And the question is, how is Jesus going to fix it? What is his prescription for this problem? Well, at least in terms of changing the circumstances, he isn't going to fix it. And that's the interesting thing. In his response, he does not say at all that he's going to, at least in the short term, change their circumstances at all. And in one sense, you'd have to ask, why would he? Because this, along with the church in Philadelphia, which was also being persecuted in much the same way, he has no problem with them. They're not in any great decline. They're they're not notable for any sin or for heresy or compromise of any kind. They have no spiritual problems worth mentioning. So in that sense, why would he change their circumstances? Well, one thing he does need to do, he certainly needs to comfort his flock through this suffering because that's part of his job as the good shepherd. He's going to comfort his flock, whatever their circumstances. He's promised them that they're going to have persecution. But he's also promised that he would give them 
care and comfort through it. And with every other case, he does that through revealing himself to his people. Again, this is counterintuitive. We think of problems and we think of solutions. If we are suffering in some way, we want something to fix that suffering. But that isn't exactly the way Jesus addresses it. When he sees a problem with his church, whether it is that they have fallen into sin, whether it's they've fallen into heresy, or whether they're simply being faithful but suffering for that in the world, his solution is to reveal something of himself to them because he's all-sufficient, you see. If we can't find our sufficiency in Christ, then there, there is no sufficiency. There's going to be nothing that's sufficient for us. If Christ isn't enough for us, well, the problem is bigger than what Christ can solve because Christ can't give anything more than himself. But that is his method, you see, with all these churches. He's doing it by revealing something of his all-sufficient character and work. James Ramsey wrote in his commentary at this point, there is no form which the ever-varying state of the churches here can assume, which will not find in the revelation which he has given of himself some aspect of his divine fullness exactly fitted to it. Thus we are also taught the safety and comfort of the church must depend on her views of Christ. If we have a problem, if the church has a problem, the solution is to be found in our views of Christ, what we know about him. And so the question here for Smyrna is not how is Christ going to change the circumstances, but how does Christ reveal himself to this, his suffering church? And the answer comes in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who is dead and who came to life. He is the creator God. He is everlasting And so, therefore, he has all the resources then. Therefore, he has the perspective then that is independent of the little variations in time that happened, which seem so terribly significant to us, but in his great perspective are not. And as the creator God, he holds us in his hand. We know that that is a great promise of the good shepherd, that I hold you and no one can snatch you out of my hand. And moreover, he speaks as the one who was dead and who came to life. The life that he, he gave up in order that we might have eternal life. He's reminding those people that even if you were to die, even if you had to give up your life, and he says that, he says, be faithful unto death. Yet, you will live because I gave up my life for you. And it is in that truth that the church has the resources to carry on in persecution. Now, incidentally, I said he wasn't going to change their circumstances in the short term. We need to be reminded that he shall change. He's certainly going to change the circumstances in the long term. That is precisely what Revelation is about. Just keep reading the book. You'll eventually find that the circumstances change. But it is his will for the moment that the suffering goes on just as it was the Father's will that Christ suffer when he was on the, in this earth. Now, Christ is Lord of all. There was never a time that wasn't the case, but there was a time when he was in a manger. Christ is the King of glory. He is a Lord, the Lord of hosts. But there was a time in which he was bound and taken prisoner and beaten and put on a cross. 
Christ as a king of life, but there was a time in which he was put to death and he died. All those things happened at a certain time in which it was the will of the Father that he were to suffer. Now we know that we are the much better for these things having happened. Aren't we thankful that this king of glory was once in a manger? Aren't we thankful that this Lord of life once laid down his life for us? And eternity will be the much, much, much better for these things. But they will be put right. Christ didn't stay in the tomb. He rose again the third day. And he is coming again in glory. And every eye shall see him, even those whom, who pierced him. And all things will be set right. So do not confuse the two issues. It is absolutely the case that for the moment it is not the will of God that the circumstances would change, but that is only for the moment. What they needed at the moment was the resources of who he was and his ability then to restore them to life. But one day the circumstances were going to change. That is very much the point, the larger point of this book. Well, let us think of these things in three headings, three points. First, I know your suffering. Second, do not be afraid of suffering. And third, the rationale. Why it is that Christ can ask this suffering of us. I know your suffering. Do not be afraid of suffering. And third, the rationale. So the first point, I know your suffering. That's what it says in verse 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Jesus knows their situation. We have said this again and we recur. He's the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He is there among them and he knows them intimately. He does not merely know them in theory. He does not merely look up in a book and find out something about us. Although if we're his people, we are written in his book. And that's not at all insignificant. That's highly important. But moreover, he walks among us. And he knows us as much as and more than our own families who spend all their time around us. And so therefore, because he knows the church in Smyrna, he knows their situation, and it is a situation of suffering. A twin aspect of suffering, both tribulation and poverty. Now, that's a different description than the one we had in Ephesus. You remember that there their works were in terms of toil, in terms of their orthodoxy, in terms of what we may consider. If you were to ask us, okay, tell us what our works as a church have been over these two and a half years. And we would say something along those lines, wouldn't we? And indeed, one wonders how modern conceptions of success for a church fit in with Smyrna's description. I know your works. And maybe some church would want to say something like this. I know your works. I know that Sunday morning attendance has grown by 50%. I know you've bought a building. I know your programs. And indeed, I think that those things could be replaced by much better things. Things like I know your conversions. I know your preaching. I know your diligence. I know your orthodoxy. Things that we all desire. Things that we pray for. And things that in some measure God has granted But even still, that doesn't quite match up with the description we have in Smyrna because the description of their works was entirely in terms of suffering and not at all in terms of those other things, however important and however to be desired they might be. 
Smyrna is not noted for them. And again, it appears it's interesting in that along with Philadelphia, these are the churches that are not being pointed out for any problems. They're being commended for what they're doing. There's nothing in this description in Smyrna that smacks of even the mild criticism. And yet their works in terms of wonderful things that they have done for him, not even mentioned, except they were willing to suffer for him. And that's an important exception. What asset does Smyrna possess? What is the basis for Christ's very positive evaluation? It's their suffering. Suffering. Smyrna has suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now much could be made of this connection. Much could be made in terms of the reality as we look back in church history and we cannot deny the fact that in the times and the places where the church has been persecuted, it has been pure and faithful on the whole. We cannot say that these things are inevitable. There are also persecuted churches that have gone, that went off into false teaching in various ways or maybe into various sins. So it's not an inevitable connection. But on the whole, the general trajectory has been a suffering church is a faithful church. Well, here this suffering consists of both of tribulation and poverty. And if I were to sum that up, it's like this. If the world could give it things like money, status, security, if the world could give it, they don't have it. And if the world could take it away, things like reputation, liberty, even their physical integrity, it's either gone or they're in the process of taking it. If the world could give it, they don't have it. If the world could take it, it's either gone or on its way out. That's their situation as a suffering church because, A, they're under tribulation. Now, that word tribulation rightly implies both suffering and suffering for the purpose of being tested. There's a separate word for being tested that we also have in this Section, But this word, and I think in this context, it is particularly pointing to the suffering aspect of it, affliction. Now, the fact that they were suffering affliction and tribulation does not make them to be a strange, exceptional church. That's the way we take it. We say, this is the persecuted church. How strange. I wonder what that was like. Because we imagine that to be the incredible exception to, the, to normality. But I don't think that's particularly the case. I think that maybe we're the exception. Look at that. The non-persecuted church. How strange is that? Because Jesus himself makes it clear that the expectation, the norm, is that all of his churches are going to be persecuted. That's what it says. John 16:33. In the world you will have tribulation. So if we don't have tribulation for the moment, then I think we're the strange ones. Well, they certainly had tribulation. And strong tribulation at that, as we see. But B, they also had poverty. Now this word here is not and just in the mere state of being relatively lower on the economic state. You know, sometimes we have a, a poverty line, which that means if you, it's just a percentage or something along those lines of what the average income might be, or I forget how exactly they come up with it. But we're not speaking about a relative term along these lines. We're talking about absolute, deep poverty. 
And the way it's translated in 2 Corinthians 8.2, that in trial of affliction, the abundance, this is speaking of the Macedonians, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. And the ESV translated that extreme poverty. So this is no minor inconvenience. This is no relative lack that they didn't have all the luxuries. This was deep and extreme poverty. Now, between these two things, their tribulation, their affliction, and their poverty, that they're willing to endure for Christ, they are extremely valuable in the sight of Christ. You see, again, we sometimes think that the only thing that could be useful in the, the, in the sight of Christ must be some tangible benefit that we have given to the church. I don't mean to critique that those things, I'm not saying that that's wrong. Yes, it's right that we ought to, we desire the prosperity of Zion. We want to be of use in any way that we can. We want to use our time, talent, and treasure to that end. But we must remember that there is something else which Christ finds valuable, and that is our willingness to suffer for him. Now, one other thing that they have, and that's that they were slandered against. Remember, I said that if, any, if it's anything that the world can give, they don't have it. For instance, status. If it's anything that the world can take away, they've taken it away. For instance, a reputation. It's because they've been slandered against. It says in verse 9, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. And first of all, we must recognize that some of our worst and most bitter opposition and possibility for persecution does not come from the world out there. It actually comes from those who would claim the name of being God's people. It's important for us to know that because when that comes, it is especially hard to take. It is especially hard to take from God's own people. Now, why that might be, well, you can see that it's bad enough that we're a light to the world. They want to live in darkness. They want to live in their sin. And we're a light, a bright light, if we're living as we, we ought to, if we're speaking as we ought to. We're a bright light, and therefore they don't like that their deeds come to light. But now, why would it be that, that false believers, those of false religions, why would they find us such an irritation? Well, it's because they're aware. You see, the world is trying to forget about things like judgment, things about their, their own sin. They'll do anything to forget those things. Well, those in false religions are conscious of those things, and they have clothed themselves with sort of fig leaves of, of a false salvation. And when the truth, though, the truth of Christ's word, when they come in contact with it, all of a sudden, their sort of their nakedness is exposed. And that's a, a terrible irritation to them. As no doubt it was in the case of these Jews. Those who called themselves Jews in the sense of being God's people, that's what they called themselves. But in reality, they revealed by what they did and what they said, they revealed themselves to be a synagogue of Satan. Now it says, I know the blasphemy. We usually think of blasphemy of being against God only, and that's, you know, that's the, way, the, the sense that it's normally taken, probably the right way that we would use that word. But the word itself is quite neutral. It can be used with anyone. You can blaspheme other people as well as God. It's to slander. 
And in this case, that's probably the, the primary idea, is that they were being slandered by the Jews. Now, of course, you can't slander true Christians regarding their faith. You can slander them for other things, but you can't slander a real Christian for their faith without also blaspheming Christ. If you're going to slander someone, for instance, in believing in the triune God, as probably these were, as believing in a risen Savior, one who was crucified but rose again the third day, of course you're also going to be slandering and blaspheming the Lord. And there's no doubt that these Jews denied that Jesus was the Christ. And so they were blaspheming him as well as his people. So truly they were suffering in every way that we can suffer. I don't know which of these aspects of their suffering reaches you more. Some of us do take our name to be very precious and would hate for us to be slandered in that way and our name taken away. And our material comforts, some of us count that very dear. And it would be a horrible, horrible thing to be in deep poverty. Or for those who wish at least to live in peace, if, if even in poverty and in ignominy, it would be a terrible thing to be living under constant persecution and affliction. But in all these things, there is a little parenthetical statement, even in the course of it. It reminds us of the beauty of the gospel, that even in the midst of the, of the darkness, there's always the light of the gospel. And here it says, but you are rich. See, because if he were to leave, he's describing their situation. He knows them. He's walking among them, and he's describing what their situation is. And it is one of suffering, but were he to leave it there, He's left out something important. It wouldn't quite be an accurate description of their real situation. He's left out something. And it's those four little words, but you are rich. We must not forget that fact. He counsels another church who thinks they're so rich in material things. He says in Revelation 3.18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Because though they thought they were rich, they weren't. Though they had all the things that the world could bestow upon them, they were in poverty. And though this church in Smyrna had nothing that the world could bestow, had lost everything that could be taken, yet they were rich. They were rich because they had Christ. And if you have Christ, you have everything. If you're in union with Christ, there is nothing at all that you lack. Now it is true for a momentary time, we'll mention this later, he speaks of ten days in some ways that reminds us of the brevity of life. That no matter if we suffer our entire life, if we suffer a hundred years in this lifetime, it is but in the grand scheme of things ten days. Because eternity in the millions and billions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years of eternity, we have Christ and all of his riches, spiritual and material, forevermore. We are rich. And beyond what we have in the future, for those of us who know Christ, we know the riches of his grace. We know the wonder of having been reconciled to Christ no longer being sinners under the wrath of God, but being reconciled. No longer living in fear, but having the wonderful encouragement and the joy of the Holy Spirit of being shepherded by the Good Shepherd. 
And even more so, remember this is speaking to a church, not to an individual, that they had the wonderful, beautiful company and fellowship of fellow Christians who were also suffering the same thing. Truly, they were rich. And what at Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sore? None of these things. We have the love of Christ, and therefore we are rich. Well, the first point was they're a suffering church. But secondly, Christ says to them, Do not be afraid of suffering. He says in verse 10, Do not fear any of those things which are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And his statement, his his word is do not fear. And that is so much the message we have in the Gospels. How many times does he say, do not fear? Fear not. Think just of one of these. I understand that maybe this doesn't have 100% uh, uh, in common with what we're, we're speaking, but it's illustrating the concept in Matthew 8.24. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so the boat was covered with the waves. You remember in the storm, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Why are you fearful? They should have known that the safest place in the entire world was to be on the same boat as the creator and sustainer of the universe. What was going to happen to them? What could have happened to them? Yes, the outward appearance is very grim. Yes, in fact, that boat was being rocked. And the waves were all around them and it looked very, very serious indeed. But nothing of any final, ultimate consequence could possibly have happened to them as long as they were in the same boat as Jesus because they were going to be where he was no matter what. And so if you put your faith in Christ, if you're united to Christ, you're in the same boat with him. You cannot be separated from him. Where you are, he is. And where he is and will be, there you are and will be as well. And so we should not fear if we are in Christ. Do not fear any of those things. Now, we might say, what should we fear then if not suffering? Isn't that what everyone fears? The sort of things that he's he's speaking about to me sound like some of the worst things anyone could imagine on this earth. What should we fear then? Well, Jesus again makes that very clear. In Mark 4.40, first we've mentioned more than once. Well, uh, excuse me, uh, in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I've mentioned that verse before, but I'm not sure that I've mentioned the context you may know that the context is precisely that the Pharisees were persecuting the disciples. They were already starting, even in the time that Jesus was on this earth. And of course, we're singling out the the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, but they're not the only ones. 
That will be the case for each and every false religion. As long as they're in contact with Christians, they're wont to persecute Christians in which they're contacted with. But what he says is, do not fear those who kill the body like these Pharisees who are persecuting you, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So actually then, the issue is that we should fear to offend God. We should, for instance, fear sin. We should fear unfaithfulness, not suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, I know that our problem and my problem is very much the opposite, that we often fear suffering and we don't fear sin. We're so fearful of opposition, so fearful of poverty and other things like that. And yet we're strangely fearless when it comes to sin. We have great courage to sin. We have a strange boldness to offend God. While at the same time being trapped by an immense fear of suffering. Well, it is strange. But Christ goes on. He's not saying, as I've said, he's not saying that their circumstances are going to change. Quite the opposite. It seems like it's going to get a little worse, at least for a while. It says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. It may surprise us who have a healthy understanding of Satan's limitations that he is said to be the one throwing some of them into prison. And you, you might ask, does he really have that power? Who gave him that authority to be able to throw them into prison like that? Is he not under, entirely under the thumb of Christ? Isn't that what had happened at the cross, that he was brought to heal in that way? Well, it's absolutely true that he's of a ch- on a chain, and that chain is of a definite length, but he is in the power of God and the purpose of God and the wisdom of God, He has a purpose in this world to oppose Christ and his people within those limits. Those limits spiritually are very constrained and very definite. Remember this. The limits spiritually are very constrained. He can't do much. He can put temptation in front of us, but he cannot make us do anything. Not a single thing. He cannot make us sin. All he can do is present us with the temptation. All he can do is present us with the deception, the lie. But he can't make us do anything. He, can't, he certainly cannot make us fall away from Christ. Christ said, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He's the stronger man, Christ is. Stronger than Satan. But those limits would appear to be fairly broad with regard to material and physical things in this world. You see, because the present world and all of its powers and authorities have been delivered into Satan's hands. And therefore he has the authority He has a longer leash with regard to those things, a much longer leash. Luke 4, 5 says, And the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you in their glory. And you say, Can he give this to Christ? He says, For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Now, it won't always be that way. And Satan's kingdom is a material and worldly kingdom now. He'll soon enough lose that as well. And so therefore, he is able to afflict God's people in these things. 
And for that reason, for that precise reason, that we cannot be too precious about the things that the world can bestow upon us. Because we know that Satan has the authority to take them away. And therefore, we cannot be too precious about them. Now, the Lord absolutely, he promises that he will fulfill the needs of his people, those things that we need. As it says in the Lord's Prayer, he's going to provide our daily bread. But those extra things, the prestige, the luxury, those sorts of things, reputation, those things just might be taken away. Satan just might cast us into prison. Now, we know that this won't in the end profit Satan in the slightest. He is just a tool in God's hands. And in this case, he's going to cast him into prison, and it'll be for his own evil, wicked motivations, and he'll pay for that in the lake of fire. But it is so that we will be tested. It's not just for no purpose. Remember that. Of course, the idea is we ought to be willing to suffer for Christ. But it is not for no end. It is not senseless suffering. It is so that we may be tested. And the funny thing is that Christ does not betray the slightest hesitation of of subjecting this church to testing. He's not worried about it. He's saying you shouldn't be worried about it. I'm not worried about it. You know why? Have you thought why he's not fearful about it? You know, they might be fearful because of the pain involved. And we understand that. But you might think, isn't he a little bit worried that these people just might turn out to be not the genuine article? He's not, you see. Because he knows that his people are going to pass the test. He never gives us a test beyond that which we are able to bear. And he knows that when he sends these people into prison, when he tests them, that they're going to pass. He has no fear then to send them in that. And it will be a glorious thing. You see, a lot of people can make a show of being Christ in this world, can't we? And I'm sure many people would pass the simple test of showing up to a church on Sunday morning. The question comes of when we are willing to suffer for his name's sake. Not so many pass that one. But for these who had put their faith in Christ in Smyrna, he knew that they were the genuine article and it was not the slightest hesitation for Christ to say, go ahead. I'm going to put you in a position. Satan's going to cast you into prison. I'm going to let him because I know you're going to pass the test. There are certain metals. I'm no scientist, but there are certain metals that you... You can't quite tell what they are just by looking at them, especially in particular forms that they might come. But if you heat them up by fire, then their true colors quite literally are shown. Maybe if you have something made out of copper, it turns a a, a greenish sort of color under fire. And you say, oh, that's, that's copper. So it is with God's people. Maybe in normal circumstances, we're just so much... Little bits of metal that you can't tell us apart. But in the fires of persecution, our true colors are being shown. It displays the genuineness of our faith. 
and he knows that his people are going to pass. Well, it says, it gives a specific length of time. It says, tribulation, ten days. Of course, we ought to be reminded that there's a definite limit to all these things. They don't go on forever. Eternity goes on forever. Everlasting life in Christ, that goes on forever. But the tribulation and trials and persecutions of this life, they don't go on forever. Now, the number ten, as with so many numbers, perhaps all the numbers in Revelation, maybe there's an exception, I haven't thought of one, but... Perhaps all the numbers, this has, it's symbolic, it's typological, it's pointing to something beyond itself. Perhaps the references to Daniel 1.12, you remember the very first test, the very first trial of Daniel and his friends. He says, please test your servants for ten days. They didn't want to eat the defiled food that didn't match the ceremonial laws that pointed to Christ. And because they were believers, they didn't want to eat this defiled food. And so the testing was for 10 days. And you know, of course, that they passed that test with flying colors. So maybe that's the reference here. But in any point, whether that's the case or not, it certainly represented this definite period of time which was exactly fit for the purpose of putting on display the genuineness of their faith and the reality of their faithfulness to the Lord. And finally, he says, Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Because just as there was a gospel in their current situation, this is their current situation. It's one of poverty. It's one of tribulation. It's one of their reputation being slandered. And yet in the midst of it, a reminder that they are rich. And here's their future situation in the short term. In the short term, some of them are going to be thrown into prison. But in the midst of that, what it says is, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, we some, of course, we think of prison in terms of custodial sentences, the worst possible being a life sentence. But prison back then was very often just a means of keeping someone until a competent authority would sentence them, either to death or to a beating, of which we have many examples in Acts, for instance. So it could well have ended this prison sentence, even though in in some sense it was going to last only a definite period Maybe, just maybe, some of them are going to lose their life. And what's being asked of them is to be faithful unto death. But the promise given, the good news for them, is that Christ is going to give them the crown of life. That word, Stephanos, is where we get the girl's name Stephanie from. It means a crown. In particular, it means a sort of laurel wreath given to a victor in the Roman world. And it's indicative of someone who has overcome. And that's what's being given to those. Those who overcome, those who remain faithful to Christ, who show the genuineness of their faith. They don't earn anything in that sense. But Christ bestows on them everlasting life and all the accoutrements to go along with it. Won't be any slander going on in in eternity. Won't be any question as to who's a real believer Because Christ's people are going to have the crown of everlasting life. It puts all that beyond dispute. Well, thirdly and finally, we just ask briefly, why is it that Christ can ask this of of us? What's the rationale here? Because when we look at it, it seems a bit cavalier. He says, I want you to suffer for me. Who is he to ask those things? 
Who is he that he can ask his people to suffer so much for his name's sake, to suffer the loss of everything, of their good name, of their material possessions, of their liberty and even their life? Who is he to ask these things? Well, the answer is, he who is dead and who came to life. That's who. That's the reason, of course, why he died. The reason why he was dead at some point was it wasn't accidental, you see. It wasn't of old age, this death. It was to bear our sins on the cross. That is why he died, in order that his people may live. In order that the the holiness of God, that the wrath of God might be satisfied, so he laid down his life. He who was dead. He is the one. And who rose again. He is the one who can ask his people such great things. You might ask, who is he to ask them to remain in such deep poverty? The one who made himself poor for our sakes? In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and that is a bit of an understatement, isn't it? Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He's the one who can ask us. Or in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He's the one who can ask us to lose our reputation in this world, if need be. Because he lost his for us. Being of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He is the one who can ask us to be faithful to the point of death. The one who himself was obedient to the point of death on the cross. So if he who is the first and the last, and he who is rich beyond all imagination, could become extremely poor for the sake of sinners like us, then I think it is reasonable that he can ask these things of us. If he who was the author of all life would be willing to lay down his life for us, then it is reasonable that he asks that of us. Incidentally, we mentioned that I'm go- he's, his promise is specifically, I'm going to give you the crown of life. How does he have this crown in his gift? He wore a different crown, didn't he, in this world? He wore the crown of thorns in Matthew 27, 29. A crown of thorns. Put it on his head and read in his right hand. And they bowed the knee and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on his head. It is this one who has in his gift everlasting life, who has in his gift the crown of life to bestow on his people and who has the right to ask us then to suffer as he had the right to ask the church in Smyrna. I have two applications for these things and the first is to fear God. We spoke quite a bit about the concept of fear. But I want us to think about fear in a different sense Fearing God as a summary of the gospel. Because if we're not to fear these things that we're going to suffer, then what are we to fear? Well, I mentioned that we should fear to offend God. But moreover, that in our fearing of God, that is 
You see, another way of saying the gospel. In Revelation 14, 6, it says this, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. One everlasting gospel to preach to all nations on earth. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And we're waiting to hear, what is this everlasting gospel? And we're expecting to hear John 3.16. But no, we hear a restatement of John 3.16, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Because fearing God means, first of all, that you believe in Him. And fearing God means that you also repent of your sins. And we know that the gospel is to repent and believe. What is asked of us? All the way through the gospels, it's either repent or believe, or they're both together repent and believe. They're two sides of one coin. Just perhaps you could fear that both up by fearing God. And so often believers are, are sort of given a summary title of those who fear God. Because you believe He exists, and you also repent. Because you act appropriately to your belief that he does exist as he truly is. You ought to fear God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. And second, do not fear suffering. And we have to ask our, the question ourselves. Is a church of Jesus Christ, what if everything that could be given by the world were taken away? Where would we be with our relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, there are various reasons for why the world doesn't persecute the church. We are so thankful for the Christian heritage in this nation, which to most, to, to the larger outward extent, keeps us safe. And we pray, God, that it would continue that way. But every once in a while, one of the reasons why the world doesn't persecute us is because we don't pose much of a threat to them. Maybe every once in a while, the reason why we don't find any persecution whatsoever in our workplaces is because we're not living a consistent life. We're not speaking the truth in love. And they accept us as they would their own. Maybe, in fact, we're going out of our way to be accepted as one of them and living a sort of chameleon-type existence. And maybe as a church as a whole. It's possible then. It is possible to avoid persecution by making little compromises here and there. Well, the thing that I would say to us in all cases, whether these things are the case with us or not, God knows, is that we should not fear. It is amazing to me what can be done when you have no fear. I had the honor and privilege of being a classmate at my university with another uh, ROTC Marine, another fellow enlisted Marine. And uh, he ended up uh, in Iraq. And he won the, the highest award given to an officer, a Marine officer in that war, the Navy Cross. And uh, I won't go into the details of, of how he won it, but the question that would occur is, how did he do it? How could he possibly have done what he did, which was to so amazingly lead his, his troops in battle against this overwhelming enemy and to personally accomplish so, so much? 
And the answer was, it was fairly easy. He simply had no fear, or at least not fear of dying. He did have fear. He had fear of losing that battle. He had fear of disgracing himself in front of his Marines. He had fear of dishonoring the Marine Corps and his country. And those fears greatly outweighed whatever minor fear he might have had at the moment of dying. And he was therefore able to accomplish what to us might have seemed a superhuman task. Simply dying in the line of duty, he wasn't very afraid of that. I would say that our fear of God needs to overwhelm our fear of losing things in this life. And we may boldly say with Hebrews 13.6, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, the answer is man can do some things to us, can't he? There are some things in the hand of man that he can do, but they're not of ultimate consequence. The things that are of ultimate consequence are in the hands of Jesus Christ and him alone. He has the right to call us to suffer sometimes. And the only response that is worth, that is reasonable, that is scriptural, is to fear, to not be faithful to him. Let's pray. Most loving Heavenly Father, you are so very good to your people. We are thankful, Lord, for the gospel that he's given to us. That if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we have everlasting life. And that, Lord, at that point, we have no more fear of things, or need not have any fear of what man can do to us in this life, of what Satan can do to us, of persecution and poverty and slander. As, Lord, you are the one who gives eternal life. You, the one, the first and the last, the one who is dead and is alive forevermore. Lord, you can ask, you have the right to ask your people to suffer a little for a short time in this life. We pray, Lord God, that you'd enable us and give us the strength and the clarity of mind and the right perspective and the power of your spirit to endure whatever things, small or great, that you give to us. Help us to be faithful and to the end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.